Good evening. We are continuing our uh, study through the book of Jeremiah. We're in chapter 24 this evening. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Greg will get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Jeremiah chapter 24, 25, and 26 tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight. Lord, thank you for uh, just a beautiful day today, Lord. Thank you for this opportunity that you've given to us to gather together as your church to open up your word and know, Lord, every time we come and every time we open your word, we know without a doubt you have something to say to us. And so we're blessed by that. Lord, we are uh, just a, a blessed people. And so, Lord, we pray now that as we get into your word that we would not only gain information, but application in our lives, Lord. We thank you for this time. We ask your blessing upon the kids downstairs as they're being taught your word as well. And we pray, Lord, that uh, everything we do tonight would just bring you glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we've been going through the book of Jeremiah and and, uh, seeing all the reasons why judgment was going to come to Judah and Jerusalem and how the Jews were going to be taken into captivity by Babylon and, and because they not would, they would not repent of their, their idol worship, they wouldn't turn from their sin. And it's kind of the, the same story over and over again with a few different tweaks here and there to it. But, but the Lord, uh, you know, has said to his people, you know, if you just turn, if you repent, then I'll re- relent of, of judgment. But they would not do that. And so the Lord says, well, then I'm going to come down and you're going to be taken captive and, and I want you to go. I want you to be taken into captivity. Don't, don't stay there. Don't fight it. You go. Now, some would go, but some would stay. And that's where chapter 24, we, we pick it up. And uh, chapter 24 opens with my favorite fruit, figs. I love it. I, I read that. I think, okay, this, this is great. And, and uh, figs are great. But if you bite into a bad, bad fig, it's disgusting. It's nasty. It, 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 I mean, you just want to spit it out. And, and uh, I, you know, I do all my can, all I can to eat it sometimes because I love figs so much. I, I know it's bad. I know it's bad, but you got to get rid of it. Well, the Lord is going to use the same illustration tonight to show Jeremiah just what's happening, what's going on. Look at verses 1 through 3. The Lord showed me, and there were two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord, after Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah with the craftsmen and the smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, like the figs that are first ripe, and the other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. Then the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, figs, the good figs, very good, and the bad, very bad, which cannot be eaten. They are so bad. The, the, the vision was given to Jeremiah, uh, this vision rather, after the second deportation of Jews to Babylon. The first occurred in 605 B.C. in the reign of Jehoiakim. Uh, the king of Babylon was fresh from his victory at, at, at Carchemish over Egypt and Assyria. Nebuchadnezzar, he's on his war path, wanted to flex his muscle. He, he, uh, he took some of the Jewish nobles prisoner to Babylon. And among them, four names you might recognize, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. You might know three of them by the Babylonians' names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or by their vegetal names, Rakshak and Benny. They were the good figs. They're the good figs. 
Now, the, the second deportation occurred in 597 B.C. After Babylon, Babylon's failed invasion of Egypt, Jeconiah, the king of Judah, rebelled against Babylon and allied with Egypt and said, oh, we're, you know, we're going to get them, and, but they lost. So the good figs were the Jews who were taken to Babylon. The bad figs are those left behind. Now, in Jeconiah's place, Nebuchadnezzar installed a king he hoped would be loyal. Jeconiah's, Jeconiah's uncle, Zedekiah, History tells us after the second deportation, Nebuchadnezzar snuffed out a couple of uprisings in the east. But, but this gave the Jewish uh, false prophets hope that, hey, you know, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, they're, they're going to fall. They're going to be toppled. And despite Jeremiah's warning to the contrary and his pleas to Judah to, to surrender to Babylon, King Zedekiah and listened to the false prophets and he rebelled again. Now, this set up the final siege of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, burned the temple, took most of the remaining people from Judah, and brought them into exile. Judah became a, a, a province of Babylon, putting an end to an independent Jewish kingdom. Now, this Babylonian conquest of Judah is a strategic event, even in, in biblical history. It's not just limited to, to this time. Starting with Babylon... Daniel, in his book, in the book of Daniel, describes the succession of Gentile kingdoms that would rule the world. Daniel chapter 2 pictures uh, them as flashy, flashy metals, what they look like is seen by men. Chapter 7 envisions them as ferocious, devouring beasts, what they look like through, through God's eyes. See, these were war, world-dominating empires that would rise uh, after Babylon. So Daniel saw Babylon, he saw Persia, Greece, Rome, and the last kingdom would be the kingdom headed up by the Antichrist. And it's during this future uh, kingdom that Jesus would return and establish his kingdom on earth, and, and uh, uh, this time physically and politically. So understand, what we read in Jeremiah, it doesn't only relate to a bygone era with no relevance for today. It sets up still future events and, and the fulfillment of all of God's promises. We see, we'll see future events still to take place. Now verse 4. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah, whom I have sent out of this place for their own good into the land of the Chaldeans. For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. Then I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Notice in verse 5 that God sent them away in captivity for their good. For their own good. And then he promises to watch over them and then eventually restore them a remnant to their land. Now, now the restoration that this refers to isn't the return of the Jews under Ezra and under Nehemiah. It's clear from the Lord's word where he says, I will plant them and not pluck them up. Obviously, they've been plucked up again. And, and, and so rather this, I believe, refers to the, the final restoration during that millennial kingdom where it says they shall return to me with their, their whole heart. And again, the bad figs represented Zedekiah and those who remained in Jerusalem and Judah and finally went down to Egypt in defiance to God's word. Verse 8, And as the bad figs which cannot be eaten, they are so bad, surely thus says the Lord, so will I give up Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his princes, the residue of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will deliver them to trouble into all the kingdoms of the earth for their harm. 
to be reproached and a byword, a taunt and a curse and all places where I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine and the pestilence among them till they are consumed from the land that I gave to them and their, their uh, fathers. Now, you read that and you go, okay, this may sound kind of indiscriminate on God's part. I mean, you know, after all, you know, did these people have a choice as to whether to, to or not to be left behind? Did they, did they want to stay or, or, or did, did they have a choice? Jeremiah has been urging the nation's leaders to surrender to Babylon and be safe, but they refused to listen. So instead of obeying God, they looked to Egypt for political and military aid and someone fled to Egypt, Egypt against God's will. So the people remaining and in around Jerusalem were the ones that wanted to be there against God's will. It's been even suggested that, that they thought themselves superior over the ones that left because they're saying, well, we stayed in the promised land. We're better than you guys. And, and doing, they're doing what, the, what they wanted to do in spite of what the Lord told them to do. And then they're thinking they're more spiritual because of it. Self-deception. You know, we talked about that a little bit last night at our men's study, uh, how people convince themselves that something is right because they say, well, I have a peace about it. Yeah, you know, I'm living with my girlfriend and, and we're not married, but we just have a peace about it. Okay. <laughs> it's a self-deception. You're making up this peace because you want this so badly. Well, you know, we're going to get a divorce and we just have a peace about it. No, you don't. You want to do what you want to do and, and, and you know, you try to make it sound so spiritual and, and, and that's what's going on here. They, they were convinced staying was right even though God said otherwise. Okay, chapter 25. As we've mentioned before, the book of Jeremiah is not in chronological order. The prophecy here in chapter 25 was given 18 years before the prophecy given in chapter 24. Chapter 25 is, is a midlife or mid-ministry reflection on the part of Jeremiah. He'd ministered 23 years by this point, and he'll end up ministering another 17 years. And so, <coughs> excuse me. So here's the word of the Lord, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah... In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, this is the twenty-third year in which the word, word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you have not listened. And so... Jeremiah, he's realizing how long he's been there, how long he's been doing what he's been doing. And, and they, you know, they figure he was probably 17 years old when God called him to prophesy. And so he's now been prophesying for, for some 23 years. That means he's about 40 years old at, at this prophecy. And, and he said, man, I've been preaching to you guys for 23 years. And you're still not listening, still not hearing a word that I said. Now, now I've been preaching here for 20 years and thankfully... <laughs> You guys are not that way. You guys listen, and then we all listen, and we've all been changed. But you can see, hear the frustration in, in Jeremiah. You know, his heart for the people to turn and, and, and repent. He goes on to verse 4. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them. But you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, repent now every one of his evil way and his evil doings and dwell in the land that the Lord has given to you and, and your fathers forever and ever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them. And, and do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands. And, and I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord. 
that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and perpetual desolations. Jeremiah, faithful to preach over and over and over again, but the people just would not listen. And the Jews treated Jeremiah the same way they treated all the other prophets. But Jeremiah, he was smart enough not to take it personally. I think often rejection as a Christian experience is not about us, you know. It's about what we stand for. You know, I think, and I shared this last night, you go on any college or university campus and and you put up a table, and you, you put some tracks on there, and you want to tell people about Jesus. And nowadays, these kids, they don't want to have a discussion. It used to be able, you can engage in a conversation with people, but anymore, you know, I got this track, let me tell you about Jesus. And you can't even get two words in edgewise. And they start attacking you and who you are. And, and it really, you got to understand, it's not who, it's not you, it's, it's who we stand for. It's who we love, it's who we serve. Remember what Jesus said in John fifteen twenty. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Well, here in verse 4, Jeremiah reminds them that the Lord has sent servant after servant, all his prophets and them proclaiming his word, but they still wouldn't listen. And the message from the prophets were all the same. Repent now, turn uh, from your evil doings. But the Lord, Lord knows that they're not going to listen. So Jeremiah prophesied as to them what's going to happen next. Look at verse 9. <coughs> the Lord says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against the land. Uh, here, he's actually naming Nebuchadnezzar by name, and he's the one that's going to come down and conquer Judah. And, and Nebuchadnezzar, he wasn't a believer in the, in, in the true God of Israel, but God calls him his servant. Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. That's because he's being used by God uh, to accomplish God's will. God's own people wouldn't obey the Lord when they had everything to gain, but, but pagan rulers like, like Pharaoh and, and, and Cyrus and Nebuchadnezzar, they were servants of God to fulfill God's purposes. I mean, God even used Balaam's donkey to, to do the same thing. I think we need to remember as a church that, that the Lord is, is sovereign and can use whatever tools He decides to use to accomplish His purposes on earth. Even unconventional leaders, even, you know, people like our president, you know, I, I mean, God can use him. And, and I'm thankful for all the things that I don't know where he stands with the Lord, but I'm thankful for the things that have been happening in our country and, and the laws and the people that are around there. You know, God can use him in, 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 in this situation. Nebuchadnezzar, on the other hand, he was probably one of the, the, the worst dictators the world has ever seen. Erecting this, this golden image of himself and, and threatening the world with a fiery furnace if they didn't all bow down and, and pay homage to, the, to this, uh, this idol, this, this statue. I mean, he was the, the ultimate egomaniac. Wicked, barbarous, yet, yet God calls him my servant. And again, just because God uses a person doesn't mean he condones all that the person does. God can use anyone. Verse 10, he says, Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. 
Now, the, the sound of the millstones speaks of, of commerce. The light of the lamp speaks of safety. And basically, God's going to shut down the businesses. No one's going to feel safe anymore. There's going to be no weddings. There's going to be no celebrations. It's over. Verse 11. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. It's an amazing prophecy. Here, God actually reveals the duration of their captivity. These nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. <coughs> Excuse me. Of course, the question comes up, why 70 years? We're told in Second Chronicles 36, 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept the Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So the, the law of Moses uh, uh, not only required a Sabbath day, but a Sabbath year. So every seven years, the land was to reset, uh, rest or lie dormant for that whole year. And that would then you know, cause the, the, to, the nutrients to replenish itself in the ground. But for 490 uh, years, greedy, unbelieving Israel had disobeyed this law. So for every year of disobedience, God sentenced them to, to one year in Babylonian exile. So in the end, God made sure that the land rested for 70 years. See, God's going to get what he wants one way or the other. Now, what's interesting is, is while living in Babylon, Daniel was reading the, the book of Jeremiah, and he came up to this verse. And he realized that he, it, it's been 70 years that it, it was about to expire. At that moment, God sent the angel Gabriel with one of the most thrilling prophecies in the entire Bible. <coughs> Excuse me. Since it took 490 years or seven periods of sevens for Judah to get into trouble, it'll take them 490 years or 70 periods of seven years to make things right. Then Daniel has shown another 490 future years in which the Jews will be made righteous and God's kingdom will be restored. Daniel chapter 9 speaks of this, gives us the detail of the redemptive 490 years. After the 483 years, Messiah will come, but he's going to be cut off for his people. Daniel 9 predicts the exact day, April 6, 32 A.D. On that day, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, his triumphal entry. Crucifixion was four days later. The final seven years is yet to come. The great tribulation period. And so verse 12 here, we read that after the 70 years of captivity, the Lord says that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity. So Nebuchadnezzar, being God's servant, doesn't mean that, that a servant, that you're going to be immune from God's judgment. Now we're going to, we'll study when we get towards the end of the book, Jeremiah's specific judgments against Babylon in chapters 50 and 51. But it was one thing for Nebuchadnezzar to do God's work, but when his attitude became proud and hateful, and, and even he's stepping over the, his bounds. Babylon eventually fell to the armies of the Peds and the Medes. <laughs> Peds and the Persians, the, the, the Medes and the Persians in 539 B.C. So verse 13. So I'll bring on the land all my words which I have pronounced against it, all that is written in this book. And you know what? The Lord still will do that. All that's written in this book, he will bring it to pass. Which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning all the nations. Verse 14. For many nations and great kings shall be served by them also, and I will repay them according to their deeds and according to the works of their own hands. 
So just as the Babylonians had made slaves of Judah, they themselves would become slaves to the other nations. Verse 15, For thus says the Lord, God of Israel, to me, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. Verse 16, And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink to whom the Lord had sent me, Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and its princes, to make them a desolation, an astonishment, a hissing, and a curse as it is this day. Saying all the nations of the world are guilty. Like a, a wine cup gets full, there's a, there's a filling up of the wrath of God that takes place. Over in Revelation chapter 14, we see a corresponding verse that talk about the wine cup of fury of God's wrath. Revelation 14.9 we read, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, verse 10, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So we see another picture here of the wine of the wrath of God. <coughs> he goes on, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And then he goes on in verse 19 of Revelation chapter 14. says, So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. So we see the wrath of God. We see it during the tribulation period. We see here God introducing to Jeremiah the phrase, the wine cup of the fury from my hand. Yes, God's fury would first come to Jerusalem and the cities of Judah and the kings and the princes are, princes are mentioned here as well. But although it especially relates to the sin of Israel, it's not confined just to God's own people. We know after Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, Jeremiah mentions Egypt. Look at verse 19. He goes on, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his princes, and all his people, all the mixed multitudes, all the kings of the land of, of Uz and the kings of the land of the Philistines, namely Ashkelon and Gaza and Ekron and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, Moab, and the people of Ammon, all the kings of Tyre and the kings of Sidon and the kings of the coastlands which are across the sea, Dedan, Tima, Buz, and all who are in the farthest corners, all the kings of Arabia and all the kings of the mixed multitudes who dwell in the desert, all the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam, and the kings of the Medes, all the kings of the north, far and near, one with another, and all the kings of the world which are on the face of the earth, also the king of Shishak shall drink after them. Therefore you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, and vomit. Fall and rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you. And it shall be, if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You shall certainly drink. For behold, I begin to bring calamity on the city, which is called by my name. And should you be utterly unpunished, you shall not be unpunished. For I will call for a sword on the inhabitants of the earth, says the Lord of hosts. Peter declares in 1 Peter 4.17, judgment must begin at the house of God. And we know Judah would be the first to fall to the Babylonians, followed by Egypt, the Phoenician cities, possibly Syria. Verse 26, uh, Shishak was an ancient king of Babylon who would also drink of the cup of the suffering when Babylon met her match with the Medes and the Persians. Now, do you think that God would punish Jerusalem for their iniquity and just allow all these other nations just to go unpunished? Of course not. 
That's what God's saying. Yeah, yeah, I'm punishing my people, but listen, everyone's gonna, gonna get theirs. I think in the same way, our sin in the United States is much, not much different than the sin that Israel had going on at the time. A nation that had forsaken God, a nation that's living after pleasure, a naked a nation that has forsaken righteousness, nation that, that, you know, ordered prayer out of schools, a nation that, that is promoting, you know, killing, uh, unborn babies and, and, and I mean it, it, it's, it's horrible you think God's going to okay well I'm just going to I'm not going to look at that you know I, I got Israel I got my people but I'm just going to leave that alone no God says you're going to drink of this too the whole earth is God's judgment is going to come upon the whole earth see at this point we, we jump out to the great tribulation in the future we take a leap through a time capsule verse 29 says again you shall not be unpunished for I will call for a sword on the inhabitants of the earth says the Lord of hosts he goes on in verse 30. Therefore, prophesy against them all these words and say to them, The Lord will roar, roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He will roar mightily against his fold. He will give a shout as those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. Jeremiah pictures God's judgment here as a lion let loose in the sheepfold. And the Babylonian armies, they're going to be bloody and ugly and ruthless. And, but I also see something else here. Revelation chapter 5. Jesus is seen as a lion from the tribe of Judah. He's a, the one person, person op, worthy to open the, the, the seals and take possession of the universe. And when the lion roars, it's when Jesus returns to the earth. It was Thomas Jefferson who said, Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just. I mean, that should cause... Lots of nations to tremble. If they believe uh, that truth, that they'd be fearing the Lord's appearing. Verse 31. A noise will come to the ends of the earth, for the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He will plead his case with all flesh. He will give those who are wicked to the sword, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, disaster shall go forth from nation to nation, and a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the farthest parts of the earth, and at that day, the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall become refuge on the ground. Again, this, this kind of devastation is unparalleled in history. These verses only make sense when you read them in light of Revelation and the massive destruction that's going to come on the face of the earth before Jesus returns. By the end of the, the final seven years of tribulation, the Bible tells us that over half of the earth's population is going to be dead. Many, so many, they're going to be slain that they, they, they can't all be buried. So it ties in with what we're seeing here. Verse 34. Well, shepherds, and cry, roll about in the ashes, you leaders of the flock, for the days of your slaughter and your dispersions are fulfilled. You shall fall like a precious vessel, and the shepherds will have no way to, no, a way to flee, nor the leaders of the flock to escape. Now remember earlier, Jeremiah spoke of the political leaders as shepherds. He goes on, verse 36, A voice of the, of the cry of the shepherds and a welling of the leaders to the flock will be heard, for the Lord has plundered their pasture, and the peaceful dwellings are cut down because of the fierce anger of the Lord. He has left his lair like the lion, for their land is desolate because of the fierceness of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. Now Jesus came the first time as a lamb. Man, he handled us with kid gloves. He was a sacrifice for our sins. But he's going to come a second time as a lion. Man, his claws and jaws ready to pounce 
to roar with fierce anger and judgment. Now, chapter 26. Chapter 26 begins by letting us know when this took place. Verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, the word came from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah which come to worship in the Lord's house all the words that I command you to speak to them. Do not diminish a word. So God wants Jeremiah to speak to all Judah. And the Lord's saying to Jeremiah, I want you to go, I want you to stand up in the temple, and I want you to tell the people what I'm going to tell you to say. Now, since all the Jewish males would come to the temple three times a year, he could address them in the temple during one of these three major feasts, which feast it was, we don't know. But trust me, Jeremiah's message had the same effect as, as someone crashing a party. It's not going to go so well. The Jews are there, they're in their temple, they're, they're, they're they're busy playing religion and, and Jeremiah would come in and, and, and his voice would thunder over their powerless prayers and, and their fake adoration. I mean, he's just going to let them have it. A.W. Tozer wrote, Men may play at religion as they play at games, religion itself being of all games the one most universally played. I mean, love for God is, is easy to fake. You know, just, just learn the language, memorize a few verses, and you can put, you know, like Christianese, speak the Christianese, and you can play the game. And that's what was going on here. Everybody in Jeremiah's day, they're just playing. Except God. God was not messing around. He's serious about our devotion to Him. You know, He, he, he expects sincerity. So He's got His servant, Jeremiah, coming into church, so to speak. And he's preaching, he's saying, I'm going to preach repentance. You're going to preach repentance to those there at the temple. Look at verse 3. Lord says, Perhaps everyone will listen and turn from his evil way, that I may relent concerning the calamity which I purpose to bring on them because of the evil of their doings. I mean, this is beautiful. You might want to underline that or, or highlight it. Before giving Jeremiah the words he was to speak, God reveals his intention of the words that he's going to speak. Yeah, they were deep in sin, but if they would repent, God would relent, is what he's saying. If they would listen, if they would turn from their evil ways, then God would relent. We know that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. We're told in Ezekiel 33, 1, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why should you die, O house of Israel? And the Lord can say the same thing to the nation we live in. To turn from your wickedness. Turn, turn, stop, turn from your evil ways. Repent. We need that. What is biblical repentance? It's a complete change of mind regarding sin resulting in a change of behavior. Changing a direction you're heading. In Henry Ironside's book, Except Ye Repent, he puts repentance into perspective for us. He writes this. It can never be out of a place... To it can never be out of place to proclaim salvation by free, unmerited favor to all who put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it needs ever to be insisted on that the faith that justifies is not a mere intellectual process, not simply crediting certain historical facts or doctrinal statements, but it is a faith that springs from a divinely wrought conviction of sin which produces a repentance that is sincere and genuine. No man can truly believe in Christ who does not first repent, nor will his repentance end with when he has saving faith, but the more he knows God as he goes on through the years, the deeper will that repentance become. A servant of Christ said, I repented before I knew the meaning of the word. I repented far more since I did then. 
I understand that. I get that. There's a tendency to think that after you've repented, uh, uh, you know, uh, to think that you've repented less after you're saved. Actually, I think it goes the other way around. You've heard the saying that, that although a Christian is not sinless, he or she, he or she sins less and less. While that, that, that ought to be true, one reason a Christian sins less and less is because he's repenting more and more and more. As you grow in the Lord, your sensitivity, our sensitivity to sin grows. Until so you go, oh man, I didn't know, oh, oh Lord, and you repent. Well now in verse 4 we get the message the Lord wants Jeremiah to say. Look at verse 4. And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, If you will not listen to me, to walk in my law, which I have set before you, to heed the words of my servants, the prophets whom I have sent to you, both rising up early and sending them, but you have not heeded, then I will make this house like Shiloh, and will make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. Now, Shiloh was a place where the tabernacle was first placed when they came to the land, but Shiloh has now become a, a desolate ruin. So Jeremiah the prophet, he comes into the temple, he's standing there in the house of the Lord with all the priests and all the prophets, and he says, if you don't hearken to God, if you don't repent, God is going to make this place, this temple, just as desolate as a ruin as Shiloh is. Man, Jeremiah, he was not holding back. Man, he comes in, says what needs to be said, and does it. Now, so often, pastors let the fear of offending people make them amend what God wants them to say. You know, they add or they leave out or just soften up God's word, picking and choosing what to talk about instead of rightly dividing the word. Listen, God wants us to tell it like it is. He wants me to tell it like it is. It's been said, some people water down the word of God to the point where if it were a medicine, it wouldn't heal. And if it were a poison, it wouldn't harm. The intention of preaching is for folks to repent and turn from their evil ways. The, the intention of, of teaching is to learn and to grow in our relationship with the Lord. Sadly, churches today are not getting either, neither teaching nor preaching. Now, both can be done in a way that pleases the Lord. And, you know, I've had people say, well, you know, there's too much entertainment in the church and pastors shouldn't use too much humor from the pulpit. I, I say, well, you know, you can't tell me that Jesus didn't have a sense of humor. You read some of the stories that he's going through, man, that is just plain funny. But the ultimate goal is, is, is for people to hear the heart of God as the pastor teaches the word of God. And, and if you use humor to, to lighten things up a little bit to people, get people's attention, it helps to allow God's word to work in people's life as, as the spirit of God through the word of God touches the man or the woman of God. In other words, when people listen, they're convicted by God's truth. Vance Havner wrote, it's not the business of the preacher to fill the house it's his business to fill the pulpit. Fill the pulpit with the preaching and the teaching of God's word. Jeremiah speaks the truth, warns the people, and as a result, the priest got very upset with him because at this point, he's talking about how the curse of God's come upon their, their precious temple and how it's going to be made desolate. You know, it's like, well, you can talk bad about me if you want, but you start talking about our temple and, and you're in trouble. That's your attitude. Look at verse 7. So the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. Now it happened when Jeremiah had made an end of the speaking, all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, that the priests and the prophets and all the people seized him saying, you will surely die. <laughs> we don't like what you said. You're going to die. I mean, he speaks the truth. People, prophets, false prophets, priests, they didn't like it. So under the leading of these priests, of these prophets, the people grabbed Jeremiah. 
Man, they're determined to put him to death, all because he dared to speak out in the house of God, declaring that it was going to be destroyed because of their sin. This mob scene takes place. So they say in verse 9, Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, and the city shall be desolate without an inhabitant? And all the people were gathered against Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. And they're all coming against... God has, God has His way, though, of protecting His servants. Verse 10. Well, when the princes of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and sat down in the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. And the priests and the prophets spoke to the princes and all the people saying, This man deserves to die for he has prophesied against the city as you've heard with your ears. It's been said, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from a religious conviction. And here the leaders of Jerusalem, they're just a classic example. Verse 12. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the princes and all the people, saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city with all the words that you have heard. Now therefore amend your ways and your doings and obey the voice of the Lord your God. Then the Lord will relent concerning the doom that he has pronounced against you. As for me, here I am in your hand. Do with me as seems good and proper to you. But know for certain that if you put me to death, you will surely bring innocent blood on yourselves on the city, on its inhabitants, for truly the Lord has sent me to, to you to speak all these words in your hearing. Man, do what you want to me. And my, my blood is on, on your hands, you know, but this is what's going to happen. Just, such a courageous man. I mean, he's, he's, he's seized by this angry mob of clergy and politicians. His life has been threatened and, and he has one chance to make his defense. He has one chance to back down. And, oh man, maybe this is not going to happen. Uh, I can't say for sure what the Lord said. No, he just said, this is it. And you know what? You're done. Verse 16. So the princes and all the people said to the priest and the prophets, uh, this man does not deserve to die for he, he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. I mean, notice how fickle the people are. They're ready to put him to death under the leadership of the prophets and, and, and the priests because they, they've spoken against the house of the Lord and against the sea. But then the princes show up and the people say with the princes, oh, okay, well, no, he shouldn't die. He, he's spoken in the name of God. Just back and forth, back and forth. Yeah, the priests, the prophets, and the people wanted to kill him, but the politicians, the princes, they realized they have no grounds. There's no grounds to kill him. So the people changed their minds. But isn't that what happened at the trial of Jesus? It was Pilate and Herod wanted to release Jesus. Politicians agreed to his crucifixion only because the priest insisted upon it. Now, this is one of many similarities between Jesus and Jeremiah. They both never married, never had kids. They both were men of sorrow. That's why when, when Jesus asked his, his disciples, who do men say that I am, the Son of Man is, and they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah. Because they had a lot in common. Verse 17. Then certain of the elders of the land rose up and spoke to all the assembly of the people, saying, Micah of Morsheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field, Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all, the, all Judah ever put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and seek the Lord's favor? And the Lord relented concerning the doom which he had pronounced against them. But we are doing great evil against ourselves. So to validate their verdict, their conclusion, 
Certain of the elders referenced a prophet from their, their past, Mike, who delivered a similar warning to repent during Hezekiah's time. And it reminded them, even for a moment, that, that God would relent even if they would repent. But the people, you know, they would let Jeremiah go, but they still would not repent of their rebellion and sin. This is just a, a momentary fleeting change, but not true repentance. They might maybe even thought, hey, look how good we are, and we're letting Jeremiah go. Then they bring up another example of verse 20. Now there was also a man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Urijah, the son of Shemaiah of kirjath Jerem, who prophesied against the city and against this land, according to all the words of Jeremiah. And when Jehoiakim the king, with all his mighty men, and all the princes heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Urijah heard it, he was afraid and fled and went to Egypt. Then Jehoiakim the king sent men to Egypt, Elnathan the son of Akbor, and other men who, were with, who went with him to Egypt. And they brought Urijah... Urijah from Egypt and brought him to Jehoiakim the king who killed him with the sword and cast his dead body into the graves of the common people. So they bring up another case of which we know nothing about except to mention that, that, that you know, this guy, he fled to Egypt and then came back and was killed. But they're saying Jeremiah was not the only faithful prophet at this time. But it makes you wonder though if this Urijah had not been afraid and not fled, perhaps God would have delivered him just as he delivered Jeremiah. Finally, verse 24. Nevertheless, the hand of Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah, so they should not give him to the hand of the people to put him to death. So evidently, they listened to the arguments that came from this man, Ahiakim, son of Shaphan, who had been serving as maybe Jeremiah's legal counsel. I've heard it said, not all lawyers are liars. It's just the 98% that give the rest of them a bad name. <laughs> but uh, uh, this Ahiakim was one of the few good lawyers. And you know, I think we need to praise the Lord for Christian attorneys that are willing to defend God's people. You know, the ACLJ, the, the American Center for Law and Justice, and, and all that. They're a great group of guys, and, and they defend the cause of Christ. And, and may the Lord raise up more Ahiakims. I mean, the message of Jeremiah, it's clear, repent, and God will relent. Turn from your sin, turn to God, and, 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 and he will forgive you and bless you. Continue to go down that path on your own. Refuse to, to surrender to the Lord, and destruction will come. I don't know about you, I am so glad that I'm a Christian. That God revealed to me my need to repent and turn to him, and I now have the blessings of knowing him the blessings of knowing that, that I'm going to be with him for all eternity, that heaven is waiting for us. As Pastor Chuck Smith would say, glorious. I can't wait. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight, Lord. Lord, the message is, same, is the same. Lord, you're not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So much so, Lord, that you gave your only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. We thank you, Lord, for opening up our eyes to see your need to repent. And Lord, even this evening, Lord, if there's need in our life to repent of some sin, Lord, that you revealed to us now, Lord, uh, it's, it's not a one-time repentance, Lord. Maybe it's an attitude that we need to repent from. Maybe some words that we said that were hurtful that we need to repent from. Maybe it's just a, a sin of omission, Lord, something we should have done. You laid it on our heart to do and we didn't do it, Lord. Help us not just to look at, at, at you know, big things, but these little things in our life, Lord, that we know that can be displeasing to you and, and turn from them and repent. 
knowing, Lord, that, that you want to use us. You want to pour grace out upon our lives to bless others. Thank you for tonight, Lord. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.